He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That is from the preceding section of the passage we're studying in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. So open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, and I will take us before the throne of grace for opening prayer. Our Father, we're thankful, thankful so much for your word that we can rely on it, count on it, that it stands fast, stands firm. There have been attacks, assaults, there have been critiques, but nevertheless, your word stands firm. It is evidence a testimony that this did not originate in a human mind but it originated in your mind and was revealed through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit so that every phrase every clause every word is guaranteed by you to be true and that we must study it we must learn it we must assimilate it internalize it we must live our lives and on its basis and we must learn to use it to take every thought captive for Christ. Father, we're thankful for our salvation that is by grace through faith and that you have made us in Christ a new masterpiece, a new creation in him for that we may stand as trophies of your grace throughout all eternity and that all that we are, all that we have is for the purpose of glorifying you and being testimonies and evidence of your grace. We pray that as we study today that we would come to a greater appreciation of this, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying in Ephesians 2.11, and we come to a passage in Ephesians 2.11 which contrasts two groups of people, the uncircumcision and the circumcision. And what we're going to see is that for uh, the period since really in some sense Genesis chapter 12 with the call of Abraham and the establishment by Genesis 17 of the covenant with Abraham which was indicated by the uh, act of circumcision as a seal of that covenant, the sign or the token of that covenant and that from that point on, this became a symbol of the distinction that God made between Israel, whom he chose, not because, as he says in Deuteronomy, not because there was anything good in them that he saw. In fact, he told them that they were a rebellious and stiff-necked people. But because that was his plan, was to use them to be a trophy of grace in the Old Testament, to be a demonstration. They did, had done nothing to earn or to be worthy of that covenant. And in fact, in many places, we see that they are rebellious and they are apostate and they are uh, just no better at all than their surrounding nations. In fact, in some cases, they're even worse. And yet, they're trophies of God's grace that God did not uh, desert them. God did not end his plan with them. God continued to work through them as he does with us in in the church. And so we need to come to understand what is happening in this passage, this, this marvelous shift that takes place in history that after approximately 2,000 years 
of God working through one people of God, Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is shifting gears to work through another people because Israel had rejected their Messiah, and yet he has not permanently rejected them as Paul teaches in Romans 11, but there is yet a future, a glorious future uh, for God's people, Israel. As we look at the passage, just to remind us of this section, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, is a focus on the problem of the Gentiles, a reiteration of that. That is specifically spelled out in verse 12, and then verse 13, the solution of what Christ has done. We read, therefore, remember, that's our focal point, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision. And when you say that, it's with a nasty tone. It is an epithet. They're name-calling, you uncircumcised dog, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. They're the elite. They are above everybody else. The circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, literally without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, here we have, Grace, a passage that is parallel to what we saw back in Ephesians 2.4, but God who is rich in mercy, and here we see the same idea, but now in Christ Jesus, because verse 4 tells us that those who were dead or alienated from God, were God made them alive together with Christ, so that now we're in Christ, now in Christ Jesus. You who were once far off, that is, those who were the... Uh, aliens. They were the uh, strangers from the covenants of promise. But now they were, they, once they were far off, but now they have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now in the last two lessons we talked about the church, for this is one of the foundational, if not the most foundational passage in the New Testament related to God's purpose in this new entity, the church uh, elevated in, with great honor to be called the body of Christ as well as the bride of Christ. And so I covered uh, basic points and basic passages related to understanding uh, who the church is and what the meaning of the word church is and when the church began on the day of Pentecost in uh, 33 A.D. and that it will end with the rapture of the church prior to the tribulation. That is when the rapture of the church occurs. The Christ returns in the clouds, not to the earth. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. It's interesting right now because of this COVID pandemic that there is a lot of speculation about uh, being in the end times, the end of days, are we close to the tribulation. Every week I see two or three headlines that indicate that, that we're already in the seal judgments or the trumpet judgments and, uh, this pandemic is identified as some, uh, plague that comes during the tribulation. Well, that's just based on a bad interpretation of scripture. This plague is a foreshadowing as all plagues have been. You go back and you look at the previous, uh, Pandemics throughout the history of the world from the plagues during the time of the Antonine Caesars, uh, which was probably smallpox. Later on in the Middle Ages, you had the Black Death. You had the uh, bubonic plague that ravaged Europe. And you had various other plagues of measles and smallpox and that, that ravaged the earth. But all of these are simply foreshadowings of the kind of horrific plagues there'll be at the end times. But we won't be there as members of the body of Christ today. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, you will not go through the tribulation. But what Matthew teaches us is that these kinds of things in Matthew 24, wars and rumors of wars, plagues and famines and everything, 
when he identifies those as signs of Christ's coming, Christ's coming is at the end of the tribulation, those signs that he's talking about in Matthew 24 are something that is significant. And so that when we see those wars, and we see those earthquakes, we see those plagues and those famines, they will be unlike any plagues, famines, wars that have ever occurred in human history. They will be uh, much greater on a factor of a thousand. They will make all of these other things pale in insignificance. All of these plagues and pandemics and famines and wars that we've seen for the last 6,000 years of human history would be like falling down and skinning your knee compared to having both legs and arms amputated. That's the degree of difference. It will be horrific because they are the birth pangs of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other thing that we I have to remind people of, because I hear so much of this, it's just amazing the the rumors and everything else that goes around the Internet. And And so this will tell you just ignore all of that. It's just nonsense. One of my professors at Dallas Seminary was... Dwight Pentecost, a very well-known writer, author, pastor, taught much about prophecy, and he would say to us men, remember, Satan has no more of an idea of when the rapture will occur than you do or I do. And therefore, in every generation, in every decade, he has got to have his men on the scene He's got to identify someone as a potential first beast and second beast, that is the Antichrist and the false prophet. He has to have systems where he can put into place as quickly as possible all of the things that are that are identified in the book of Revelation from Revelation 6 to through Revelation 19. He has to have that ready. So that means that when, wherever you live, whenever you live, you're going to be able to look out there and identify certain people perhaps, and perhaps they were the ones that Satan had identified as a potential antichrist or false prophet. But but what the text teaches us is that you're always going to see things like this because Satan has to be ready. And so when you read or hear of some pastor or some teacher or some article trying to identify a current event, that's just called newspaper exegesis. And they're just looking at a current event and saying, this is that. Now, recently I saw an article by a post-millennialist. Now, remember, they don't believe in a future rapture. They don't believe that Christ will return before the millennium. And he was taking to task the headline of the email indicated, Great Bible Scholar Sees This Pandemic as a Sign of the Times. But actually, when you read what he said, uh, the author who wrote the article, when you read what he said, uh, he didn't say that in the article. He knew better. The person he was describing was a friend of mine who uh, is also on the board with the Pre-Trib Rapture Study Group, uh, Dr. Mark Hitchcock, who's also a professor at Dallas Seminary. And what Mark said was, what we're seeing here is just a foreshadowing of what will come, just like every other plague. But Gary DeMar, who is a noted um, noted false teacher, noted post-millennialist, you know, gets all upset about this and tries to uh, paint dispensationalists in a corner. But we as dispensationalists need to be sharper, wiser, more focused. Don't get distracted by all of these claims and everything else. Focus on our mission, which is to take the gospel to the world. That's what we need to focus on and to grow to spiritual uh, spiritual maturity. And so we live in this distinctive age. And it's marked by the fact that in Christ Jesus, those who are far off, that is the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, as I went through my orientation to the church, I concluded with the last point last week that this problem of circumcision had to be addressed at what is known as the Council of Jerusalem in uh, Acts chapter 15. It's preceded by the key event of 
God giving a vision to the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10 where he sees this tablecloth come down and on this tablecloth are all manner of unclean animals. He's got, you've got lobster and shrimp and catfish and you've got pigs, you've got bacon and pork chops and pork sausage and all kinds of things there that were unclean according to the law. And God's voice comes and says, take and eat. And Peter, Peter represents that, that arrogance of works that was still present in him, still pr- present from his Jewish background. He says, no, 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 God, I'm not going to do that. I have never let anything unclean pass my lips. And God does this three times to get the point across, and he says, what I have declared clean is now clean. And so just as that finishes, there's a knock on the door. There's some messengers from Cornelius the centurion in Caesarea by the sea calling upon Peter to come and to talk to Cornelius. And Peter goes there, and he gives them the gospel, and they're saved. And he says the same thing happened to them that happened with us on the day of Pentecost. And so this is the opening of the church, which had been existing since the day of Pentecost, to to Gentiles. But as the church expanded in the Gentile community, there were still those Jewish background believers, especially from a Pharisaical background, who just couldn't get away from the law. And so they were raising uh, questions and challenges of what was happening with these Gentiles. And in Acts 15.5 we read, Some of the sect of Pharisees who believed, they were, they were believers. They were, but they hadn't understood what God was doing yet. They believed, they rose up and they said, it's necessary to circumcise them. They have to be circumcised. This is the sign of those who are believers. They've got to be circumcised or they're not really saved. They have to keep the law of Moses. So they didn't understand that God was doing something new. This is in Acts, uh, Acts chapter uh, 15. Now, Paul responds to that. Others respond to that. And James, in his uh, conclusion, says, And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, and then he quotes from Amos 9, 11, and 12, and the point is that at the end God says, When he returns in the kingdom, there will be Gentiles, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. And so he is telling these Pharisees that it's not for Jews only. God always had a plan to save the Gentiles. And so that's our background for the verse we're studying now, which states, therefore, remember. That's your basic opening line. Therefore indicates that it is a conclusion. It is a word in the Greek that indicates for this reason. What's the this refer to? It refers back to what was said in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, specifically and more generally to 1 through, 1 through 10. But it is referring to the fact that we're saved not from works, not from works. And so since we are not saved by works, Paul is saying to the Gentiles, now remember your past. Remember this. And in the Scripture, when we see these commands to remember, and here it's the word nemanuo, which is where we get our word mnemonic, a device to remember something. It's a second-person plural, y'all, all you Gentiles. Remember, it's a present imperative. This is something they continue to remember. See, we, we use the word remember sometimes as just a reflection on something that happened in the past. Think back upon this thing that happened before. But in biblically, from the Old Testament, the idea in the Jewish community is to, you were to remember something in order to act on it, in order to do something. It wasn't just a reminiscence. So, is telling them to, to remember something because it by remembering them, he's going to tell them how to change their conduct. So he's talking to them, you were uh, once Gentiles in the flesh. And what that emphasizes is their mortal physical condition. They were not physically descendants from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were physically distinct from Jews. So he then introduces the fact that 
by this parenthetical clause set off by the M dashes in the New King James Version, maybe some others use a different uh, uh, punctuation device, that they are called uncircumcision by what is called, and it's not just by what is called the circumcision, but what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hand. You've got to get the whole phrase in there. Uh, That's one of the things that's important to recognize Scripture uses phrases as technical language as much as it uses individual words. So they're called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. And that's interesting because in the parallel passage in Colossians 2.12, it stresses that the church-age believer has a circumcision not made with hands. What's the significance of that statement, made with hands? That would be a human work. That would be a human effort is to do that, uh, physically thinking that a physical act would somehow solve the sin problem, that a physical act would bring about, uh, would bring about eternal salvation. And that is in contrast to what Paul just said about works. He said it's salvation is not of works in verse 9, and but that good works are what we are created for. It's the result of our salvation, not the cause of our salvation. Paul was a Pharisee. He understood completely the Pharisaical mentality. He understood that this emphasized uh, emphasized a great arrogance on the part of the Pharisees. Today we have difficulty understanding that distinction, uh, this contrast in the hostility, the enmity. That's a word that is used later on in the chapter, is to talk about this this enmity uh, that had been that had existed between Jew and Gentile. This was something that was. Uh, profound. It was a a racist kind of situation where the Jews Jews would not have anything to do with Gentiles. Uh, they had by this time in history perverted the meaning of circumcision. Those who weren't circumcised were strangers. They were strangers. I always thought that, you know, we live in a world today where we've got some people who take offense at the word alien, which is the same kind of concept. I think it's a good word to indicate the distinction. It comes out of a biblical view of nations. But they were strangers. They're strangers from the covenants. They're alien. That's what Paul goes on to say when we're looking at verse 12, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, they were strangers, they were not of Israel. They were not chosen by Yahweh, so they were some sort of lesser human. That's how this had become um, become perverted. It had become a source of spiritual elitism, whereas God desired, as we'll see in our passages that we study, a, a genuine humility a humility among the Jewish people because they were to be the agents of God's revelation and blessing to the world. But this had been transformed in the last couple of centuries before Christ into something that was quite different from what God had intended. But Paul understands this elitist mentality in Philippians 3, uh, 4 through 6, as he talks about how he was before he was saved. He said, although I might have had confidence in the flesh, that's where the Pharisees are. They put confidence in the flesh, in the uh, circumcision made in the flesh by hands. And he says, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. I was circumcised the eighth day, that was according to the law, of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So he had something to be proud about. That's what he goes on to talk about. But then he realized that there's nothing that we can do. There's no works. There's nothing we can be 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 proud about. Now, when we look at what Ephesians 2:11 is talking about, referring to all that Israel has, it reminds us of a parallel passage in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, where Paul says, Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, 
the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Now think about that. They're looking down at the Gentiles and they're saying, look at us. We are called God's chosen people. We are the apple of his eye. We are called the bride of Yahweh. We were redeemed by the Exodus. We were the only people on the earth given a piece of land and made a nation, and the Messiah is going to come through us. Who do you think you are? You're nothing. God's chosen us. And so they developed a hatred and a contempt for the Gentile. They would look at these Gentiles and they would say you Gentile dog and they would cross to the other side of the street rather than walk on the same side of the street as a Gentile they were totally absolutely socially distanced from all Gentiles they wouldn't lower themselves to uh, speak to them and God forbid they would never walk into a Gentile's unclean house See, that's what Peter's problem was in Acts chapter 10, verse 20. He didn't want to go into this unclean Gentile's home, but but he remembered that God said, what I have declared clean is now clean. There was this massive shift in God's plan, uh, and that's described uh, in Acts. So what Paul is doing here is reminding the Gentiles of this hatred, this enmity, this contrast between the between the Gentiles and the Jews. Of course, the Gentiles didn't call themselves Gentiles; they they were just a people. But they, they there was this this hostility from the Jews, and I think part of that is the reason that you had the development of anti-Semitism is because it was a reaction to this sort of elitist, haughty contempt that the Jews had for Gentiles, for non-Jews. So, in order to understand more about what is going on here with this terminology and to grasp its significance in this passage and in all these other passages, we need to take a little time to look at what the Bible teaches about circumcision and this contrast between circumcision and uncircumcision. Now, when you look at this verse, you just have this uh, parenthetical phrase, who are called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. It seems almost as if Paul puts that in as an afterthought, but the Holy Spirit has no afterthoughts. So we have to look at this, we have to understand it, because the Word of God emphasizes this, and it's important for us as Gentiles who are now part of the body of Christ, where there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, to understand what is going on here. And this is a fascinating study because of the way God uses uh, circumcision. This was, not, uh, this was not just a simple ritual, but this was one that had great significance, both for Israel and in our generation, not the physical part, but that the physical ritual was to represent a spiritual reality that is a circumcision of the heart. So this is really fundamental to understanding our sanctification as it was for understanding the sanctification of of the Jews in the age of the Jews. Now remember we have to keep a dispensational distinctive here that we're going to talk about what was true about Israel in the Old Testament when they were under the the covenant with Moses and that's distinct from the roles and responsibilities of church age believers and that's what this is all about this new entity called the church so first of all circumcision is defined as the removal of the foreskin of the male's genital organ now this is important because it it's the imagery here it's the removal of something And that indicates a a distinction, something that is going to, uh, that was necessary, something was necessary to be removed in order for there to be a spiritual advance. That's what it represents. So the basic Hebrew word is mul. And today, if you know Jews, they'll, they'll have a, go to a bris. A bris is a the Jewish ritual of circumcision of a male child on the eighth day, and it's done by and they, this is probably uh, a Yiddish word, 
but it's based on mool, it's moil. And it's spelled M-O-H-E-L, but they pronounce it moil. And so the moil will be the rabbi who is trained, and he's the one who performs the bris. The word bris, B-R-I-S, comes from the Hebrew word berit. But it puts an S on the end, that's Yiddish. Uh, The trend of Yiddish is to put an S on the end instead of a T. So if you're talking to a Jew and they're speaking Hebrew, they'll call it Shabbat, period, Sabbath, Shabbat. But if they're from Eastern Europe and they are speaking uh, Yiddish, they'll call it Shabbos. So you'll hear that difference. They'll put an S there on the end. So some of you have had that. I've been to a... Uh, a bris before. What's interesting is in the Jewish community, because everybody understands this and sees this and witnesses this, I went to an Orthodox ceremony. The uh, women and men are always separated during the service, and so there's that separation. But everybody is totally familiar with what a circumcision is and what the procedure is all about, not so much in the Gentile community. In the Greek, the word is peritemno, and it's used 14 times in Acts through Jude. A lot of that is in Acts and also in Galatians and Ephesians here and and Colossians. Those are the primary passages where it is uh, where it is talked about. So you have the verb 14 times in Acts through Jude, and the noun 34 times from Acts through Jude. So this is not something that is hardly ever mentioned in either the New Testament or the Old Testament. The second thing we need to pay attention to is its purpose, its significance. Where did it come from? Why did God have Jews, Jewish males, be circumcised? Circumcision is the sign or the token or the seal of the Abrahamic covenant. It was a sign of separation unto God. It was to make them a distinct people, and this was a sign of of that. And the first time that we see it uh, mentioned in the Scripture is when God establishes his covenant with Abraham in uh, Genesis chapter 17, verse 10. Now, this wasn't a means of salvation, It was only an indication of one's relationship to the covenant that God made with Abraham. And that covenant uh, was not a covenant of salvation. It was a covenant whereby God was selecting and identifying the Jewish people as the people through whom he would work. They were uh, being adopted into God's family as a nation through whom he would save. Now, that doesn't mean they were all saved. That was a perversion that came up later through Pharisaical doctrine during the latter uh, Second Temple period. Uh, as Paul says, it, the, the giving of the law and the covenants was for Israel. It made them special and set them apart. It was an act of divine grace. And God chose Abraham, not because of who Abraham was or anything that he had done, but because of God's own special purposes to be the father of this distinct people, this distinct nation through whom God would give his revelation, through whom God would give the promises of the Messiah, and through whom God would give the Messiah. And so that makes them special, but not because of anything that they did or anything that they were. So in Genesis 17, we read God saying, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So that is its significance. It is a sign of the covenant Uh, There's no mention of salvation or some enhanced spiritual value, but other than God has blessed them with his contract and with the specifics of it. In verse 12, we read the stipulations. He who is eight days old, so a male child on his eighth day, uh, shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations. Notice, it's only for the men. Why is that? 
That's one of the questions I'll ask. We'll talk about that in a minute. Only for the men, every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner, that would be a slave or a servant uh, from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and who is bought... Uh, Bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So that tells us that this covenant with Abraham is everlasting. It's not. Uh, there, it's not going to be uh, set aside. So it, that means that the Jewish people, whether they are apostate like they were uh, during various times in the Old Testament as they were in the under the leadership of King Manasseh, one of the most evil kings in the Old Testament, they were still God's people. And God's covenant was still in effect. His Abrahamic covenant, he never left it. So even when he kicks them out of the land in 586, they're still his people. The Abrahamic covenant is still in effect. Uh, God never got, went back on this covenant. It is an everlasting covenant. And even now, I believe, in the church age, because it is not related to salvation or sanctification, but to this Abrahamic covenant, I think that it is fine for uh, Jews to be circumcised because it's a sign that they're related to that covenant. They are a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And whether you're a believer or unbelieving Jew, uh, it isn't, as long as you know it's not a, a matter of, of uh, sanctification or salvation, then that is fine because it is a fulfillment of this covenant which is still in effect. In verse 14 we read, And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now what's interesting is about 10, 12 verses later, we're told that that same day that Abraham was circumcised, Ishmael. Now, Ishmael isn't in the line, but Ishmael was living in Abraham's house, so Ishmael also uh, had to be uh, circumcised. And then when Isaac was born, uh, he, too, was circumcised. Now, why was this a sign that was only for the male? What did it signify? Well, first of all, Circumcision signified separation to God. What's another word that we use for separated to God, separated to service to God? We use the word sanctify, don't we? Now, it's interesting. We're going to see in Deuteronomy chapter 10 that they were to uh, circumcise their heart to God, to the obedience of God. Almost the same language is used by Peter in 1 Peter 3.15 where he says sanctify your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that that parallel, it's almost the same uh, same language there. So circumcision of the heart is equivalent to sanctifying, being set apart. And this is what it did physically, is it set apart the nation for the service of God. Why the men? Well, it's separation to God, number one. Number two, it's because the first sin, the first significant sin was Adam's. Because Adam sinned in the garden as the head of the human race, all sin passed down through Adam. This is why in the New Testament, Romans chapter 5, 12 and following, we read about the fact that in Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive. In Adam all die because of Adam's sin. So it is the, the first male was responsible for bringing sin into the human race and so you have this emphasis on males in Israel. Uh, the first sin came from Adam. The third point here is that the man is designated as the head of the home. He's the head of the wife. He's the head of the home. And therefore, in the, in the uh, uh, dispensation of the law, it, there's this emphasis on the man. If you wanted to go and... Uh, offer sacrifices at the temple, you had to do it through a Levitical priest. Now, what are the qualifications of a Levitical priest? First of all, they had to be from the tribe of Levi. It didn't matter how competent you were in every other area of life. You may have been an expert butcher. Uh, you may have been an expert teacher of the Bible. But that responsibility was given to those in the tribe of Levi only. 
And so you have this emphasis on Levitical priests, but only a male in the tribe of Levi was to teach the word. Only a male in the tribe of Levi was to offer the sacrifices. And so that was part of that that distinction. Why is that? Because God had different roles and responsibilities for males as opposed to females. Uh, this is not sexist. This is God is the creator is saying that I'm making different roles. Just like I, I'm not being favorite. He's not showing favoritism in uh, giving the tribe of Levi the priesthood. Uh, that's clear from many scriptures that they weren't so hot either. So, but that is God's plan. He's designating certain people uh, for certain roles. So in Israel, you have only male Levites serving. And so when you talk about circumcision, it's continuing to show that the male is the one who is set apart as the spiritual head of the marriage, of the family, and of the nation. And so that is why the men and men only are set apart in this particular way. Now, this distinction, this role distinction, is just as uh, much in effect today because it wasn't based on the law. It was based on God's created order in Genesis chapter 2. We have two passages in the New Testament that reiterate this. 1 Corinthians 11.3 Paul says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. The word head, the Greek word kephale, indicates authority, indicates uh, headship, authority, and responsibility. In Ephesians 5.23, the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. And so this indicates this distinct role, and in all these places, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, as well as the 2 Corinthians 11 passage, Paul always argues from the order of creation and God's design in creation. He never argues from any cultural basis. And so this has never changed. It was true in the Old Testament and true in the New Testament because it's not grounded in the Mosaic Law. It's not grounded in something else that was temporary. It's grounded in God's eternal purpose in the creation of men and women. So it indicates a a separation to God, uh, first of all. Secondly, it indicates that because sin came from Adam... The man, that uh, man is the head of the human race. And third, because man is the head of the home. That's why he chooses such a distinctive uh, symbol. So this indicates the distinct role of the male in the the, uh, marriage, family, and home in the Old Testament. So in Genesis 17.10, we read, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now the next point is to understand that circumcision was already practiced as part of distinct cultures in the ancient Near East, but there was no meaning. It was usually a sign somehow of of uh, uh, advance from being a male child to a uh, adult male. It was around puberty, or an age around puberty, and that's when circumcision would take place. But it really had no other meaning or significance, and uh, it was only a few in the in the Middle East. But when you got out of that area, it was not practiced at all. In fact, the Greeks and the Romans really looked down upon it as some sort of barbaric practice. That is true even today. You find there's a lot of hostility develop, developing towards this uh, in even in the United States. Some years ago, there was an attempt by the city council of San Francisco to render this illegal uh, as some sort of uh, 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 medical malpractice. And a lot of this stems from anti-Semitism to stop the Jews And even Jewish doctors were on board with that because there are a lot of self-loathing Jews uh, in the community. 
and uh, so they wanted it this stopped but it all boils down to something that is seeking to stop the identification of those who are the descendants of Abraham Isaac and Jacob now one thing that's interesting is what happens in the second temple period and I'm going to try to make this a little bit short but it's important to understand what's happening when Jesus is on the earth and after that what has happened so the second temple period is that period from when the second temple is is built in 516 BC as as a result of the Jews returning from uh, the exile in Babylon but when you go through the first three or four centuries in before Christ comes, uh, you, you see this development of certain religious sects uh, within Judaism, and the most conservative are the Pharisees seeking to maintain a very rigid obedience to the law so that something like, like uh, the exile to Babylon won't ever happen again. And so there are some interesting things that are said, and they develop their own system of interpreting Scripture. And I'm not going to go into a lot of that, but one passage is Ezekiel 16.6. And there God is speaking. He's talking about the birth of, of the nation, and he's using a very graphic illustration. The child is born, and the child is there, and the umbilical cord's been cut, and there's blood on the ground. And God says, when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. This is talking about God giving life to the nation of Israel by virtue of the covenant, which is marked by circumcision, where there would be some shedding of blood. Now, what's important here is not the ex, our exegesis of Ezekiel 16.6, but how Second Temple period Jews interpreted that passage. And here's a quote from the work Mekilta Bo, chapter 5, talking about uh, the comments, the rabbinical comments on Ezekiel 16.6. Rabbi Matia bin Cherish, so he lives in the early 2nd century, so this is just after the last apostle dies. And he is a, a rabbi, he's a Pharisee, he says, regarding this passage and the timing of it, he says, but as yet they had no commandments to perform by virtue of which they might merit redemption. That's the phrase I want you to focus on. He's talking about the fact that these commandments are given, such as circumcision, so you can merit redemption, so you can earn your salvation, so it can, can be a work. And he goes on in the quote, he says that, that uh, there were two commandments given to God, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb and, the, and circumcision, and they were given so as to merit being saved. One cannot obtain reward except by deeds or except by works. So this is early 200s, and he's saying that God gave circumcision as a way to earn salvation. Uh, Jacob Neusner, who provides that quote, he is one of several editors of the Encyclopedia of Judaism, in this article on, Ju on circumcision. He says, as the Ezekiel exegesis demonstrates, the central symbol of the circumcision ritual was its blood. Here's the point. Regularly, therefore, we find reference not only to the salvific nature of the rite in general, but more specifically to the saving merit of circumcision blood. You see what's happened by the time you get to the midpoint of the first century. This is the problem in Galatians and other passages. You have these Pharisees who are saying you've got to be circumcised in order to be saved. That's what those Pharisees are saying in Acts chapter 15. It fits with the evidence that we have historically. Uh, goes on, further statement Noisner makes is, at any rate, the symbolic value of circumcision as an act of salvation is evident throughout our second century sources. It is the sign of the covenant that saves. Okay? Now, what's interesting here is he goes on to say that today almost no one is aware of the salvific symbolism it once contained. The blood that saves, the parallelism between circumcision blood and the blood of the Paschal Lamb, the very real hopes once invested in the child as a potential Messiah. Every male child was a potential Messiah. But this idea of salvation through circumcision is completely absent 
from modern Ju- Judaism. Now, when we look at the Old Testament, the Mosaic law mandated circumcision for every male child on the eighth day. Jesus' parents took him to the temple. He's circumcised on the eighth day, followed the law. Sixth point, the spiritual significance of circumcision is related to dedication and submission to God and his plan. It's separated unto God. It's separated to service to God, and this is seen in uh, three, three key passages, Leviticus 26.41, Deuteronomy 10.16, and Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. So I want us to just look briefly at these particular passages. Uh, for example, in Leviticus 26.41, this mentions in the Old Testament circumcision of the heart. So because of Deuteronomy 30, which does talk about the new covenant, there's a lot of people who think, well, circumcision of the heart is for the church-age believer, and it's not. Circumcision of the heart was expected. That was the symbolic reality of physical circumcision. Physical circumcision was teaching this idea of being separated unto God for service. And so Leviticus 26.41 is an important passage because it's right in the middle of a very long passage describing the fifth cycle of discipline. This is the central passage for the fifth cycle of discipline. And uh, it says that, that um, God is speaking, says that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. This is God walking contrary to Israel, his discipline. That's why he's contrary to them. He's, he's disciplining them and brought them into the land of their enemies. That's a fifth cycle of discipline where Israel is taken out of the land finally because they can enjoy the blessing of God in the land if they're disobedient. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt... So by looking at that context, what it tells us is an uncircumcised person is not humble. He's arrogant towards God. He's proud. He's rejected God, and he's not obedient to him, and he's disobedient. That's why he's guilty. So this explains very clearly for us that an uncircumcised heart is going to be humble, and it's going to be obedient. And that is exactly what we see when we look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. There in a passage, we see a context talking about how the Israelite believer was to live his life. And at the end of that, or in the middle of it, God says, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Stiff-necked is just an imagery of somebody who's stiffened up their back and their neck and they're going to be disobedient. They're going to do it their way no matter what. And there's no humility there, only arrogance. The context gives us some guidance. In Deuteronomy 12, uh, 10, verse 12, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the love of your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command you today for your good. That's what God requires. It was expected and possible. There were times when Israel exemplified this. But in as it goes on, it says that to do this requires that you circumcise your heart. That is that you set yourself apart to obedience to God, and that is a mental attitude. It's referring to your heart, your soul, that you're not going to be arrogant towards God, but you're going to be humble and obedient to God. So this is talking about even in the Old Testament, in the age of Israel, during the dispensation of the law, there was a circumcision of the heart. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, we read, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. But what happens is Deuteronomy 29 talks about God taking them out of the land. The first couple of verses of Deuteronomy 30 talk about God restoring all of the nation back to the land in the future for the kingdom because they have turned back to God. And at that time in the future, this would be the beginning of what we call the millennial kingdom of Christ, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. In other words, fulfilling what we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 10, 
And then we can skip forward to Ezekiel 36, which shows that this is part of the new covenant, where God says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So this is talking about that new covenant fulfillment in the future. This is also seen in Jeremiah chapter 29, I mean chapter 9, uh, where Jeremiah writes, uh, this makes it clear that the physical circumcision that it is what's significant, not the internal circumcision of the heart. This is point seven. I had the other points marked by number, but not this one. This is number seven. Jeremiah nine twenty four to twenty five makes it clear that it's not the physical circumcision that's important, but the internal circumcision. Jeremiah nine twenty four. But let him who glories glories in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight. For uh, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. And literally, this phrase has this meaning of circumcised yet uncircumcised. So they're physically circumcised yet uncircumcised in the heart so that's really a bad translation uh, Acts 7.51 refers to the Jews who are circumcised this is Stephen when he's about to be martyred says to the Jewish leaders you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears so see they're circumcised physically but uncircumcised spiritually you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. So that tells us about uh, uncircumcised, you can be uncircumcised and circumcised. So this is the significance. And it is wiped out in the body of Christ. Paul addresses this in Galatians 5, 6. 5.11 and 6.15 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. It's not a physical work that saves. And in Galatians 5.11 he says, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. So the issue is not works. That's what he goes on to talk about. And just one last passage, and then we'll come back and pick up a little bit of this next time because time is running short. In Colossians 2.11, Paul says, In him you were also circumcised. So in Christ, this is positional reality for every believer, you were, past tense, also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. How did that happen? By the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh, it indicates a separation and removal of the power of the sin nature. That's Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. By the circumcision of Christ. So there's a new circumcision. It's a spiritual circumcision, a circumcision of the heart, which actually was always the point and was present in, in the Old Testament. And so this lays the foundation for us to understand why the Jews were making such a big deal about Gentiles as uncircumcised, but we can see how they converted God's grace in their lives to pride and arrogance and haughty contempt for the Gentiles. There's no room for works. It's all about God's grace. God has provided everything for us, and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves only trust in Christ for our salvation. Next time we'll come back and look at, uh, wrap up a couple of things there as a review, and then look at the five things that were the Gentiles' problem in verse 12 and God's solution in verse 13. Father, thank you for all you've provided for us in grace, that we don't deserve anything. We're born spiritually dead, alienated from your life, alienated from the promises to the Jews, alienated from the covenants, that we have been separated from all these things as Gentiles historically. But you, in your grace, made us alive together in Christ. But you brought us near.
in Christ. You have given us all of these blessings, blessed us, as Paul says in verse 3, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Uh, nothing that we have done gives us merit in in your eyes. Nothing we have done uh, is the source of blessing. It is all your goodness, your grace toward us because of what Christ did on the cross. And if anyone is listening, may they uh, clearly understand that there is no salvation on the basis of works. There is no salvation on the basis of ritual. There is no salvation on the basis of good deeds. You can't give your way to heaven. You can't be in the right church. You can't uh, do many good deeds. You can't be kind enough, good enough, sweet enough. Uh, nothing that we do uh, cuts any ice with you because we're all born alienated from you, and there must be new life. And that new life comes only by trusting that Jesus died for us and that we believe in him, and he gives us eternal life. And, Father, we thank you for this and pray that we might not forget who we are in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.